Well, we're glad that all of you have come out. It looks like we have a full house tonight, uh, so to speak. And we're blessed once again in our very first session to uh, have uh, Dr. Lockwood, from, who's the president of Multnomah Biblical Seminary or Multnomah University, now that it's called, or as it was called way back when, Multnomah School of the Bible. Uh, I guess you can have an option of what you want your degree to uh, read. And so we're very blessed and very blessed to have... Uh, his wife as well here. Uh, it's been a blessing to get to know her, as I know that uh, not all the time does he have uh, the privilege of having his wife to come along, and so we're, we're grateful for that. He is, um, as you've read in the bio, perhaps, uh, that uh, he's serving a, a, a term as the president of the Accreditation Association of Bible Colleges. And so sometime I'm interested to hear some of the things that are going on with some of the Bible colleges around the United States. So we want to, again, welcome him. And I thought to myself, I wonder what he's got up his sleeves this time. But he's wearing short sleeves tonight. So we'll see what he has in his bag of tricks. Nonetheless, we want to give him a warm welcome. Let's welcome Dr. Lockwood. I'll, uh, I'm going to use the, uh, I am going to do an allusion tonight to begin our session together as kind of a reminder that there is a, an insight through illusion show coming up tonight about 845, I think. So I understand the kids will be back for that. But before I do that, I, I've got to make one important addition to my, my little introduction th- this afternoon. I forgot to mention that we have a daughter, and Janie reminded me that I forgot. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Elise, our daughter, was born in 1982. She graduated from Wheaton College uh, and uh, loved the college, majored in math, but hated the weather. So she immediately came back to the Northwest, and uh, she enrolled in a... Uh, program in math education at Portland State. And it was a, it's, a, it's been a great experience for her. She has, like me, uh, has been educated through Christian schools all the way through college and to come back to Portland State, uh, which is not a Christian school, if I could say that probably. But uh, she had, the way she has navigated her friendships, um, her relationships with her professors, and other, and other uh, students, uh, the way she has uh, been, a, been a light uh, and uh, to those friends and to that math department has been uh, wonderful. She's a teaching fellow, so she's finished her master's and is two years into her uh, uh, doctoral program and teaches at Portland State. And uh, then I'm really proud because she's actually teaching a math course this fall at Multnomah, uh, contemporary math or something. She would have done really great on those intellectual problems, but I, uh, I wasn't much help. You know, it's customary for magicians to do a trick with a red silk handkerchief. And I get some interesting questions, and a lot of times I will have someone come up and say, why do magicians use a red silk handkerchief. Now, usually I can't explain things like that, but I'm going to explain it to you. The reason we use a red silk handkerchief is because there's something special about the red dye. 
You see, when a handkerchief is dyed red, it becomes a vanishing silk. It's amazing. Let me show you what I mean. I can uh, take this red silk and I can place it slowly, deliberately, intentionally, in my hand. It's a vanishing silk. And when I put it slowly and intentionally and carefully enough in my hand, it vanishes. It's what a vanishing silk does. But there's more. See, magicians also use yellow silks. And sometimes I have a person come up and say, why do magicians always seem to use yellow silks? Now, I usually can't say, but I'm going to explain to you. It's because there's something special about the yellow dye. So when you dye a handkerchief yellow, it becomes a visibility silk. So I have this yellow handkerchief. Place it over my, whoops, place it over my hand. Okay. And I just reach inside and it makes visible that other red handkerchief which was just vanished. Isn't that great? It's all in the dyes, see. Now there's one other handkerchief that I love to use. It's a blue silk handkerchief. A lot of times people will ask, why do magicians use a blue handkerchief? And usually I can't say, but I am going to explain it to you. It's because there's something special, there's something magical about the blue dye. Because when a handkerchief is dyed blue, it becomes a summoning, a gathering silk. It gathers together all those other silks. So if I place it slowly, deliberately, carefully into my hand, this becomes a gathering silk. Now, do you remember the other silks that we used? What was the first one? Red. So what happens is, is it gathers that red silk. Now, it kind of gives the appearance, doesn't it, that I'm really dyeing it. But I'm not. It's, it's really gathering it together. Now, what was the second silk that I used? The yellow one. So it's got the yellow one, too. And then what's the third silk that I'm using? Yeah, the blue one. So that's why we use these different colored silks, because it's, there's something special about the dye. It just kind of can vanish or make them visible or gather them together. So that's why we use silk handkerchiefs. <laughs> and we'll be doing a little bit more of things like that later on. Now let me see if I can get this uh, detecting. Okay. Let's see if I can get this up and going. All right. Can you see that okay? 
Do you want to see it? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Have you ever thought about what it takes to be a spiritual person? A spiritual man or woman of God? I'd be surprised if all of you haven't thought about that question. That seems to be a common question among every child of God. What does it take to be a spiritual person? Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 2 about the spiritual man and the natural man and the fleshly man. So the word spiritual is a biblical term. I have discovered, and you probably have too, there is no consensus on what it takes. There's no agreement on what it takes to be a spiritual person. There are all kinds of opinions. And um, some are good and some are not so good. You could probably come up with things that people have taught you Uh, As you've grown up up in the church or perhaps uh, joined the church later in life about what it takes to be a spiritual person. You might realize there are some that really are good and solid and make sense and there's others that are a little wacky. For example, in some groups, it's very common to define a spiritual person by a list of do's and don'ts. Usually don'ts. Our church was not a church that emphasized these, but there were a lot when I was growing up. And we would call them the dirty dozen. You know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't gamble, don't go with girls that do, and stuff like that. Um, Then there's lists of things to do. And that characterizes most religions in the world, isn't it? If you would ask most religious people of any faith, You know, what must you do to be a spiritual person pleasing to God? Usually they would say something like, live a good life. And of course, that's important. There's other traditions that talk about separating yourself from evil. That was a common answer in the Middle Ages, wasn't it? In fact, they built monasteries. For men to become monks, to live apart, for women to become nuns, for orders to establish because they, they felt to be, to be spiritual, you, you have to be apart from the world. Then there's other more subtle ways. Growing up as a Christian, I got the impression that there was a hierarchy of spirituality. I'm not sure anyone would admit this, but it sure came across. I got the impression that if you wanted to be at the top of the ladder, you became a missionary. Actually, you became a missionary to Africa. That probably was the, the top, and you know, then it was rated down. And, and then if you weren't quite as spiritual as that, but... Um, You still were pretty spiritual. You went into the pastorate. And then if you weren't one of those, then, you know, as long as you were active in the church. But that was kind of down the scale. Like I say, I'm I'm not sure 
I, well, I'm pretty sure if I would have gone to any of my pastors or any of my Christian friends and said, now, I've gotten the impression that if I really want to be spiritual, I've got to be a foreign missionary. I'm sure they would have said, no, that's not what we mean. But I've talked to many of my friends who said, I, I really believe that's what they really meant. Why? Because did they really encourage you to become a physician or, or a, a, an engineer or an attorney or an accountant? Well, they said, well, sure, we need Christian attorneys. But we never had an attorney conference. We never had a, a physician's conference at the church. We had a missionary conference. And so in subtle ways, we get the message that there's a hierarchy. In fact, one of, the, one of the things I learned when I became president of Multnomah was that there were a number of alumni, none in this room, of course, but a number of alumni who felt guilty, felt literally ashamed to come back and visit the school because they were not in, in vocational Christian work. And they felt they had failed. And so one of the things that I have tried to do as a president is to emphasize that being spiritual is not vocational. You can be a sinner in any vocation. It's being faithful to the gifts that God has called you, among many other things. And I've tried to encourage students that though they may not feel called to vocational ministry, which is a wonderful thing to do, that that's not God's criteria for spirituality. Well, you could probably come up with uh, a long list of ideas of what it means to be spiritual. There is a wide spectrum of opinion. And the Bible has a lot to say about it. But often even the biblical commands aren't as clear as we'd like them to be. And I think that's by design. Because there is a, there is a spiritual, there is a, uh, an emotional, there is an effective dimension to the spiritual life. So I want to explore what this means together with you this weekend. I'm going to do it in a couple of ways. The first way... Uh, the first couple of sessions is going to sound uh, pretty academic, but it's not intended to be that way. What I want to do is, is, is explore this question by giving you an opportunity to look at some of the other opinions within the evangelical Christian tradition of what it means to be a spiritual person. I'm going to try to uh, not comment real strongly, rightly or wrongly on any of these. I, I probably will, actually. Um, but they are all, all of these views are held by genuine evangelical believers. So there, there are just disagreements. And I think, there's, I think it's safe to say there, that there are strengths and weaknesses to every one of these views that we'll look at. We're going to look at two of them today. Here are the views. Oh, and before I put it up here. Uh, I'm going to be using, in, in, in my overheads, the word sanctification. The word sanctification. It's a biblical word. To sanctify means, is the same word as to make holy. So the word holy or holiness 
sanctify, sanctification, all the same word in the New Testament. It literally means set apart. But it's used very frequently to talk about our spiritual relationship with God. So, I'm going to look at five spiritual traditions. Here they are. They're also in the notes. And you can see they all have something to do with sanctification, which means how to be holy, how to be spiritual. We could actually call this persevering spirituality, entire spirituality, second blessing spirituality. We could use that word. Okay? So these are five rich traditions. We're going to tonight look at two of them. And I've put kind of the, the names of the historical groups that have identified with them on the right, the Reformed and the Wesleyan view. So, you'll know most, more than most seminary students after this uh, week is over. Before I uh, look at the particular views, though, let me suggest and emphasize that there are some things that all five of these views hold in common. And uh, whenever you see that, that's a good clue to say, maybe that's really important. If all of these different approaches to being a spiritual person, uh, with all the differences, hold some things in common, that probably is a clue that that's biblical. And I think it's right. So let me emphasize these three first and then look at the others. Number one, all of these traditions agree that the spiritual life is progressive. That is, it takes time. That is, it involves a walk with the Spirit of God. Don't you wish that wasn't true? I mean, wouldn't it be great if I included with your notes a little bottle of pills labeled perfect sanctification, perfect spirituality? And before we started, I passed out a cup of water for everybody, and you took, a, took a, one of the pills, and you were perfectly spiritual. Instantly. Wouldn't that be great? I've had students that have wanted perfect spirituality. They've also wanted instant Bible knowledge, but it doesn't, doesn't come instantly either. I think we all long for that. I've often wondered, Lord, the minute I put my faith in you, why didn't you transform me? Totally, including giving me an immortal body and hopefully a little taller. But he doesn't. It's progressive. It will last throughout our entire earthly existence, which may be very long for some people, shorter. It was pretty short for the thief on the cross. And, of course, will continue in the new heaven and the earth. But during this life, it's progressive. I'm working on a book on faith from the characters in Hebrews 11. And one of the, one of the principles that strikes me through that study is, is the progressive nature of the faith walk that these saints of old experienced. It's a step-by-step experience. A second characteristic 
And you could probably guess this one without any help. The Holy Spirit's work is vital. Now, these different approaches are going to have different understandings of how the Spirit works. But all agree that the Holy Spirit's work is vital to the process of our sanctification, of our spiritual growth. And that may seem so obvious, but I, I really, it's a really important to emphasize. It's important for me to emphasize it for myself. Because, you know, some of us, and I, I include myself, sometimes talk about the Holy Trinity as the Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. But that's not it, is it? As important as the Word of God is, the Spirit of God is vital. And when you read passages like the, the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus gives His last words to His disciples before He goes to the cross, you realize that as He promises the coming Holy Spirit, the coming Advocate, the coming Comforter, as the King James names him, you begin to realize that he is promising that the Spirit, who already existed, of course, but he is coming in a unique and dynamic way that had never happened before. And I'm persuaded that, that as post-Pentecost believers, we have, we have a relationship with the Holy Spirit that even the Old Testament saints did not have. We are blessed with the gift of the Spirit in ways that were not true of even men like David, who, who had a rich spiritual life and Abraham and Isaiah and others. Now, to figure out how does this work, how do we tap into the Holy Spirit, that's tough. There's a lot of discussion, but the Holy Spirit's work is vital, and we have to remember it. Third thing that all five traditions agree, is that obedience is essential for victory over sin. The real point here is, sin remains with us even after we're saved. Oh, I wish I didn't have to say that to you. But it's true, isn't it? That's another question I have to ask the Lord. Lord, why didn't you just... I mean, you didn't have to give me a mortal body. I mean, an immortal body. You didn't have to make me a little taller. But couldn't you have just gotten rid of the sin? And the appetites. And the longing for the world. But that's part of the progressive nature of the spiritual life. And sin remains a challenge. And... We're commanded to obey the Word of God in, in, in achieving victory over sin. Remember, Jesus himself faced temptation from the evil one. How do we expect to be immune? He was perfectly resistant to sin. We have the resources, but we also still remain in mortal, sinful bodies. So, if you remember nothing else from this evening, remember these three. Because all of the five traditions agree. These are important. The spiritual life isn't instantaneous. 
It's a step-by-step process. The Holy Spirit's work is vital, and we are blessed to have this wonderful gift. And we still have a problem of sin. We have the resources to have victory over it, but we've got to use those resources and obey the commands that are given. You with me so far? That's the introduction. Ooh, I've got to move a little faster, don't I? Okay. Let's look at, these, at the first two. Persevering sanctification is what has been called the reform view. That is, this is the view of the spiritual life that grew out of the Reformation and still has an impact for many, many evangelicals today. The usual Reformation churches today would be Presbyterian and uh, um, Lutheran and, and many forms of Baptists and would, would draw from uh, the reform view. But many would, would adjust it, too. Um, persevering. Notice, you're going to see this same diagram with all the groups. It emphasizes that progressive dimension. And hopefully, and for this view, inevitably, an upward movement, as we're going to see. Now, in the Reform view, they see three aspects of sanctification, or three aspects of the spiritual life. So let's look back at our chart. And here's one of the ways that they would talk about it. They would say there are three kinds of sanctification. There is what has been called positional sanctification. That happens at the cross. In other words, the minute you put your faith in Jesus Christ... There is a sense in which you become a spiritual person. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, 2. This is in his introduction to the Corinthians. He says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He calls the Corinthian church sanctified, and called to be holy. Now, what do you know about the Corinthian church? The most mature, godly church around, right? No. They had all kinds of problems, divisions and disputes and troubles and immorality. But he calls them sanctified. How can he do that? And and that's about all he says. You know, in most of the letters, Paul always starts out with a compliment. He says as much good as he can about the church. You know, and, and he compliments them and all the wonderful things. And then he's got things for them to improve on. <laughs> Poor Corinthians. The most he can say is, you've been sanctified. <laughs> now, he obviously doesn't mean by sanctified, you are perfect. Because they're not. That's why there seems to be a use where it describes a person who's a child of God. So one of the things that you can realize going out from here is, I am sanctified. I am holy. I don't feel like it. Don't look like it. No halos. But on the basis of the Word of God, as it's used of the Corinthian church, they have put their faith in Christ. If you've done that, you are sanctified. But don't just stop at that verse. 
That's just one part. And it's, it's used at, to describe someone who has put their faith in Christ, has accepted the, Christ's work on the cross, and is now a new creation. But there's a second aspect. Because, remember, the Christian life is progressive. And so, the Reformed view says, after you've accepted Christ, you have position in Christ... Your position is that you are holy. Paul uses language like, you are seated in heavenly places in Christ. Now, what does he mean? Well, I know this seems like heaven, but he's not talking about our reality. He's talking about the future inheritance, which is so certain in Paul's mind. He talks about it as if we're already there, even though right now we're not. So there's a process that continues once you accept Christ. And that is a process of progressive sanctification. John 17, 17 is one example of, of a verse where Jesus, remember, is praying to the Father right before the cross. He prays for the disciples. And one of his prayers, and he's also, by the way, prays for us. That's one of the few places in Scripture where you and I are directly prayed for or spoken of by Jesus. He says, I don't, I don't just pray for those you've given me, my disciples, but I pray for all of those who will believe on me because of their word. That's you and me. And what he says about the disciples and about you and me is, Father, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, is he praying that God will save them? No. They're already saved. He's praying that God will continue to make them holy throughout their lives. And one of the ways, which we'll talk about in a minute, is through the word of God. Sanctify them, Father, through thy truth. Thy word is truth. But that's not the end of the road, Thanks, thank goodness. There is a final term that this view uses. They use the phrase perfect sanctification. They anticipate a time in which our mortal bodies will be changed to immortality. All of the remnants of sin within our lives will be done away with. And we literally, not just positionally... Not just progressively, but literally will be perfect without sin. That doesn't mean we'll be divine, by the way. We'll still be human, but we will be immortal, sinless. We'll be perfect. 1 John 3, 2 doesn't use the word sanctification, but it, it anticipates that time when we will see Christ face to face. And it says we will be like him. For we will see him face to face. We are going to be like Jesus. Now again, doesn't mean we're going to be like him in deity. Remember, we are adopted sons and daughters. He is the only begotten son of God. We are sons by adoption, daughters by adoption. But we're going to be like Jesus in, in being immortal and in being sinless. What a day that'll be.
But that's not yet. We look forward to that. So the Reformed view emphasizes this progressive nature and sees sanctification in three different aspects. And there are biblical phrases that, that are used for it. Um, there's other words that you can put, those of you that are very interested in biblical terms. Paul tends to use the word justification to describe what happens to us at the cross. We become, we are declared righteous the minute we put our faith in Christ. Peter loves the word sanctification to describe the Spirit's work on our life today. And then Paul likes the word glorification to talk about what we'll be like when we see Christ face to face. So, those are other terms that the Bible uses to describe those same three aspects. Now, remember, one of the things we've said is that sin is a big issue in being a spiritual person. So, this view, the reform view also sees these three aspects relating to sin. And this is very familiar, I imagine, to many of you. Maybe Joe has preached about this. I'm not sure. But uh, it's very common to talk about at the cross we are freed from the penalty of sin. Which is true. When Christ died, He paid the penalty for our sin so we wouldn't have to die. The penalty is gone. That's how we can enjoy forgiveness today. Because the penalty was paid once for all on the cross. Does that mean sin has disappeared from our lives? Oh, I wished it were true. But it's not. Sin is still with us. The penalty has been paid. As Paul describes it, the, the sting of sin, which is death, has been removed for us. Oh, we will die physically unless Christ comes first. But we will never die spiritually. Because Christ has removed the penalty of sin. Unfortunately, sin still lives, as Paul says, in our members, in our mortal bodies. So, it still has power over us. So, one of the things that, that the Bible emphasizes during our lifetime as believers is to overcome the power of sin by the Holy Spirit. So, we find passages like, Romans 6, where Paul says, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Why does he say that? Why didn't he just say, hey, (laughs) you never have to worry about sin again. You've been saved. It's gone. Paul realizes sin is a reality as long as we live in these bodies. Don't let it reign. Don't let it control you. Don't be slaves to sin. Lots of images like this. And the good news is, one day, we will be delivered from the presence of sin. When we see Christ face to face, our bodies will be changed, our souls will be changed, and we, sin will no longer be a part of our experience. Just read Revelation 21 and 22. Describing the new heaven and the new earth. And the condition that is our inheritance. And there's a lot of things that are true of that new time. But the greatest is, there is nothing unclean that's there. We've been cleaned up. Sin is gone. So, the reform view 
sees these three aspects, and I've, I've described it in a number of different ways so that you can grasp it. Any questions? Uh, this is always risky, but I'm going to. I'll stop at eight regardless. Any questions on this? Pretty basic? Okay, let's see what else I want to say. Huh. So how do we do it? How do we do it? The Reformed view emphasizes three provisions for sanctification. And we'll talk about these more in, in the, uh, in not this next session, but the, uh, uh, the session tomorrow night. One provision is spiritual union with Christ. Spiritual union with Christ. That's the idea in Romans 6, that when we were baptized with water, it symbolized that in a, in a spiritual or a mysterious way, we were crucified with Christ, we were buried with Christ, and we have been raised again to new life with Christ. So this union or this identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is what they mean by our spiritual union. Another passage that may be more familiar is John 15, the famous vine and the branches passage, where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, and you will bear fruit. What's so interesting about that passage is he never commands us to be fruit bearers. The Spirit of God and Christ produce the fruit. Our responsibility is to abide. And we're promised that not only will we be in Christ, but Christ will be in us. And the Father will abide in us. And if you can figure that out, I invite you to come and teach at the seminary. Because that is really a, a, a difficult thing to understand. It's a mystery. And yet that's a very strong emphasis. Second provision, of course, is the Word of God. John 17. How are we sanctified? Through thy truth. And what is the truth? Thy Word is truth. So, the Reform view and others emphasize very strongly a knowledge of God's Word to understand these truths. And then, of course, the final one is the Holy Spirit. I put in 1 Peter 1.3 1, because Peter emphasizes that it is through the Spirit's sanctifying work that we are made holy. And so, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and our sometimes called mystical union with Christ are three realities that help us in our spiritual walk. So, I could have said, well, you know, the answer to the question, how to become spiritual, is simple. Uh, experience spiritual union with Christ. Walk with the Spirit. And study the Word. And you'd probably say, well, I understand the studying the Word part, but what does it mean to walk with the Spirit? And what, really what does it mean to be, have spiritual union with Christ? So, I can give you those answers, but then we have to look more deeply at what those mean. And we will in a little bit. Characteristics of the view. Uh, don't have to write all that down. Let me say just a couple things about This view holds that everything you need 
for success in your spiritual walk, you receive at the cross. The Holy Spirit indwells you the minute you put your faith in Christ. All of the grace, all of the empowerment that you need, you receive at the cross. That doesn't mean you're perfect. That doesn't mean you're mature. That doesn't mean you, you don't have a spiritual battle with sin. But you have every resource that you need the minute you put your faith in Christ. A very strong emphasis on the transforming nature of regeneration. You're a new creation. You don't have to search for anything else according to this view. You've got it all. Your task is to understand the things that you have received. Understand the Spirit's work in your life. Understand the Word of God and obey Him. Realize that God has given you every resource that you need. You don't have to search for anything else. But stay focused in the Word. Stay walking in the Spirit. Realize it's progressive. That's all you need. Now, that may sound kind of obvious, but this is the only view that holds that. Every other view that we're going to look at believes there's something more you need to get later on. So this is very diff- This is unique in that view. But it says we don't have to seek for anything else. You've got all that you need. This view also has a, uh, I'll, I'll call it a pessimistic view of human nature. Now, all of them have a pretty pessimistic view of human nature before the cross. So, I mean, everybody believes sin is, 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 a, is awful. It's, it's destroyed us. But the question is, how sinful are we once we put our faith in Christ? Because obviously we've changed. We have a different relationship with sin than, be, than before. We're a new creation. The Spirit of God is dwelling within us. But the Reformed view holds that no matter how much you grow, no matter how much victory you enjoy, you are always going to struggle with sin to some extent or another till the day you die. I call it a pessimistic view. That regardless of your maturity... Regardless of how many good deeds that you do, there's, there's always mixed emotions. There's always some self-centeredness. There's always dimensions that are displeasing to the Lord. What's interesting to me is the more that I'm around men and women who have lived the Christian life all of their lives... Dr. Mitchell, the founder of Multnomah, who passed away at 97, was one. Dr. Pam Reeve, um, who uh, is now, I can tell her age because she's revealed it, uh, is now 92, one of our trustees whom I just met with Friday. These are people I would look at who have been faithful, who have grown in the Lord, who have impacted people, who are as uh, as as spiritual a people I can imagine. I would think if anybody has achieved perfection, don't struggle with sin, they have. But Dr. Mitchell, when he was alive, Dr. Reeve still, when you talk to her, 
the sense is, I am such a woeful sinner in the sight of God. Why is that? Have you ever noticed that? Or the spiritual people you know thinking, boy, I've arrived. I bet not. Because what happened to Mitchell, and I think what's happening to Dr. Reeve is, their view of God changes as they grow. As they get closer to God. Their view of the majesty and of the holiness of God, like Isaiah, grows. And their sense of their own inadequacy grows as well. I don't know if Dr. Mitchell or Dr. Reeve would consider themselves in the reformed, part of the Reformed view of spiritual life or not. But I think they would agree that sin is, is always going to be a part of their experience. Even though as I look at them, I think, man, I wish I could be as holy as they are. But that's what it means. There's always a dimension in which sin is part of who we are. I've got six minutes to cover the other one. Wesley. Wesley's view is called entire sanctification. There's three expressions of his view. He holds to progressive sanctification. That spiritual life is progressive as all of the views do. But there are two things that are different about his view. One is he holds to a notion of entire sanctification. Talk about it in a minute. And he also believes in non-persevering sanctification. The Reformed view believes that if you're truly saved, you will never lose your salvation. Because God gave it to you. You didn't earn it. You didn't merit it. God gave it. And when God gives, He gives irrevocably. That's why the line is always going up. There are no flat liners in, uh, in the Reformed view. Wesley took a different view. That you could be saved, but you could lose it through sin or apostasy. So, let's look briefly at his view. He holds to a progressive sanctification, as does the Reformed view. But he also holds that it's possible to reach a point which he calls entire sanctification. That doesn't mean, and this is important to be fair to the Wesleyan view, he doesn't hold that entire sanctification means you're perfect or sinless. Notice the arrow still goes up, and I probably could still make it jagged. But he believed that there, it was possible to come to a point in life where you were so overwhelmed. Two things would happen. One, you were so overwhelmed with the love of Christ. And you had put aside all known sin. That you were at, at a different level in your spiritual walk. So entire sanctification doesn't mean that you're free from all sin, but it did mean that you're free from all known sin. And the Spirit of God would would bring to your awareness those areas you weren't aware of, but you were free from all known sin. But not just free from the negative. You were filled with an overwhelming love for Christ. Your affections were for Christ alone. Wesley would ask, 
Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been at a point for, for even two minutes where you'd confessed all of your sins, uh, everything that, that was a potential barrier was gone, and then you were just filled with an overwhelming love to follow Christ and that everything else paled. He would ask, have you ever experienced that even for five minutes? He says, if you have, that's what I mean by entire sanctification. And if you could experience it for five minutes, why not for ten? And if you could experience it for ten minutes, why not for a day? And if you could experience it for a day, why couldn't you experience it for a year or longer? Wesley has, you see, a, a two-stage view of sanctification. What he's really saying is that there's something you can anticipate that you will receive that will raise you to a higher level in your life. That's very different than the other one. And the Spirit of God was very important in entire sanctification. He also held to non-persevering sanctification. Just as you could experience through a crisis of the Spirit, he called it, entire sanctification. It's also possible through habitual sin or through direct apostasy that you could turn your back on Christ. And you not only would lose sanctification, I mean, you were no longer saved. That's a very different approach than the reform view. And that's part of what he said. One of the reasons Wesley said this uh, was because there are commands in Scripture that call us to be holy. I think I have a couple of them written up here. Yeah. I'm not going to go through all this, but 1 Peter 1.15, Romans 6.12. 1 Peter 1.15 says, Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Now think about that. Be holy, Peter says, not just as Dr. Mitchell is, not just as Pastor Joe is, not just as anyone else you admire. Be as holy as God is. How holy is that? That's perfectly holy. Wesley wrestled with the question, why would God give us a command that we couldn't obey by the power of His Spirit? And you've got to wrestle with that question. And his answer was, well, we can't obey it by the power of the Spirit. And when we do, that's entire sanctification. It would come at what he called a crisis experience. Sometime after salvation. When the Spirit who indwells you, but the Spirit would come now in a unique way. And give you that overwhelming love of God. Give you that victory over sin. Make you holy. And raise you to another level. Now, I, I put it up, you know, as if it sustained that way. It wouldn't necessarily. You could come back down again. Um, 
not necessarily lose your salvation, but you, but, you know, you can go back and forth in his view as well. But I, what I want you to see is he's wrestling with a couple of things. How do we obey a command like, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy? And how do you explain experiences that we have in which we seem to be overwhelmingly in love with Christ and we want to put aside every distraction, every sin? Well, let me leave you with four vital questions. Uh, These are actually different than the ones in your books, but you can pick whatever ones you want to talk about. These are really important because they show some of the differences between these two views. Do we receive all we need for... I'm not going to answer these tonight. Maybe I won't even answer them this weekend. But these are really important. Do we receive all we need at the cross or do we seek for something else? Do we, as the Reformed say, receive everything at the cross? And and the question is, we have it. We've got the Spirit. We have the Word. We have fellow believers. And our job is now to just flesh out and, and, and use all of those resources. Or, as Wesley says, do we search for something in addition to that? A, a point of crisis with the Holy Spirit. See, that's going to affect what you do. Do you go out searching for something new or do you stay with the things you have? Pretty important question. Number two, is our salvation secure? Reform said, if you're genuinely saved, you'll be walking with the Lord. It's God will keep you if He's given it to you. Wesley said, no, you, you might not. Watch out, because sin could actually lead you not just to out, being out of fellowship, but could lead you to uh, eternal death. That's a big difference. Three, do the remnants of sin always remain in our mortal bodies? Do I anticipate where in my life I could be totally free of sin, at least of known sin? Or do I contend with the fact, the reality that I'm always going to be struggling with sin to some extent? And finally, How do we understand a command to be holy? Is God just playing with us? Or does He really expect us to be holy? And if so, how do we do it? Those are just a couple of questions that have crossed my mind. But vital, aren't they? For the spiritual walk. So, we want to address the other views tomorrow and we want to explore some of these questions in the times that we have left would you bow in a word of prayer with me father we realize as we as we uh, wrestle with the question of what it means to be a spiritual person that we're getting maybe to the most important issue beyond our salvation of our relationship with you and of service for you. Father, I thank you for each person in this room who is attentive and alert to trying to understand what it means to be holy. And I just pray that the things we've said tonight and the things we'll say this weekend will be opportunities for us to really ask serious questions 
about our relationship with the Holy Spirit, about victory over sin, and about our future destiny with you. Guide us, we pray, in our thoughts and our discussions that follow. In Jesus' name, amen.